This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CDUSA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. Just when I think that it's all been done, I visit a local fly shop or discover some new website and browse through the latest fly innovations. Lately, it seems we're in sort of a renaissance period uh, in terms of fly design, and this is especially true for streamer patterns. Fly tires are perfecting the balance between fly movement and castability resulting in a higher percentage of hookups on those really hard-to-come-by fish like big browns and muskies. Uh, my guest today is one such fly innovator, and the name of his company alone smells like the pursuit of big fish. Dan Saltow, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me this morning. It's great to be here, and I'm excited to discuss some of these fun fun things in going on in fly fishing and fly tying. All right. Well, great, man. Well, we... Um, we were introduced um, by uh, one of our previous guests, uh, Brett Weddington, and um, I am really looking forward to getting to know a little more about you and your business. Uh, but first of all, uh, a fishing story, please. Well, I yeah, let's talk. Let's have a little fishing story here, and it's kind of one you know that that circles back big picture and um, how I got into fishing. You know, I was fortunate as far as both sides of my family being outdoorsy and my dad's side of the family had a pretty long history in fly fishing. Um, albeit it skipped a little bit of a generation or two, but, um, yeah, love for the outdoors. And I've been very fortunate to spend a lot of time outside and fishing and all over the place. And I wanted, you know, I started fly tying when I was really little more as just something fun to do with my fan, with my grandfather and we'd make a big mess and all that and didn't get into the fishing until later. But, I really got the hook to spend time on the water and learn about baits and flies and presentations and all those concepts that transcend the type of fishing you're doing, whether it's fly fishing or conventional tackle. Um, but I had an early love for bass fishing down here in Texas. When I'd visit my mom's side of the family, we'd go bass fishing and it could be a farm pond or a big famous lake. And 
Um, I have a distinct memory of, you know, learning about all these baits and techniques and people, you know, boats going 70 with the glitter paint. And, you know, it's, um, was pretty wild when you're young, you know, that stuff's, you know, you're really excited about it. And I started learning more about baits and what I like to fish and, you know, really, really love bass fishing. Now I was living in Seattle, grew up there, loves, uh, Western Washington. It's not exactly the bass fishing capital of the United States, but, um, I really, really loved all the different variables and presentations and stuff that you see on, you know, with with bass fishing, whether it's on a competitive level or whether it's just going out to fish. And I was, I can remember this as clear as day, and I was probably eight or nine years old fishing on Lake Fork, which is essentially, I would compare it to something like the Missouri in Montana, the North Platte. It's basically a hub. Um, you can make the argument that it's the best bass lake in the country. Um, it was ranked that last year. I remember being out there early in the morning, sun on the horizon, and was using the bait caster, which is what my preferred technique was. And I remember, and I was fishing a football head jig, which is something I've emulated in some of my fly designs in the broad profile that those create. And I fired that jig up into the shallows and just started reeling at a full retrieve. And I came tight and immediately saw, you know, the flash of a big bass and, um, and that connection, you know, without anything in between was something I'm not, uh, going to be forgetting. And it was really fun. And as I was lucky enough to start having opportunities to go fly fishing elsewhere, that same energy that I had to learn about what type of baits to use when bass fishing, I started to understand and I could apply that to entomology and learning about trout and salmon and steelhead. And by the time I was 15, I had started working for an amazing fly shop in Western Washington called Creekside Angling. And it really spiraled off of that one connection that I really don't, you know, can't imagine ever forgetting and coming tight to that big bass. It was my first big hog, a six and a half pounder. And um, really fun fishing story. And now that I'm back here in Texas and um, in such an awesome community of anglers, it's pretty cool to look back on that, you know, after 15 seasons in Montana to, to come back to kind of my first love. Yeah. Now, do you, um, do you go back out to Lake Fork and, and fly fish out there? Or um, is that still a place where you primarily conventional fish. I I've fished it before and, um, uh, we didn't have a lot of success. I think we caught a couple smaller bass, but, uh, it, yeah, it was, uh, it's one of those places, right. That you've always heard about and, uh, yeah. Any, any yeah. cast can bring, uh, you know, the fish of a lifetime like that, like that one that you caught that stuck with you. You know, it's hallowed ground down there and it has been since it opened and, and I do. And I, to this day, the best bass fishing I've ever had was on Lake Fork with a fly rod fishing poppers. And that oh, cool. uh, was with one of my longtime, longtime buddies, Rob Woodruff, as a guide. He now is in Arkansas, but he guided fly rod anglers on Lake Fork for almost 20 years. And That's the guy we fished with, man. Yeah. So, and there you go. Um, <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, this was a long time ago. Uh, okay, go ahead. Sorry, that's cool. That's great. Um, yeah. Ryan, uh, Rob, as a... Talk about going from the frying pan right into the fryer. I mean, asking for such a challenge to put anglers on big bass on Lake Fork, you know, the pressure and the traffic and the, the sheer volume of the lake is a challenge. And I have a ton of respect for him and his fly designs were um, are still unlike anything I've ever seen anywhere else. He was very creative and he taught me a lot of just picking up and talking flies with him. He was, and he was pointing out stuff that a lot of bass anglers with conventional tackle are more aware than fly anglers and fly tires. But, um, you know, and it's in Lake Fork is still one of the best, if not the best lakes in the country, fly fishing. When you can target fish in the top couple feet of the water column, a fly rod can just be a better tool than the conventional tackle. And I've had the fortune I've had the luck to have fortune shine down on me a few times on Lake Fork when they were feeding on the surface. And probably in 20 days of fishing it with conventional tackle, we had a lot of tough days. You know, we never really had a great day. Like we fished with guides, we fished with friends. I caught that, like that six and a half pounder. I'll never forget it. But we that was a one or two fish morning maybe. 
Um, and then we go out with Rob a few times and we hit it right. And, you know, we caught more bass over four five, six pounds in that morning than I've caught since, including Mexico and Florida. And, wow. you know, and we were surrounded by tournament anglers and bass guides and they, we were putting on a clinic over there and, um, <laughs> you know, well, largemouth, there's something special when they feed on top water, they have the ability, you know, they're, they play chess with you, you know, where they're at. And you have to get them out of there. And that's that's a little different than what we're used to in the trout world, where trout are more migratory and are more willing to chase. And steelhead and salmon, obviously, migratory. You're intercepting them during a, a spawning run or whatever it may be. Bass, no, you, you see the tree in the water that's got 100 limbs and more snags than you can dream of. And you know that that's where, that's where that big mama bass is at, right there in that tree. And you got to figure out how to get her to eat and come out of there. Um, and that's, that's a really fun aspect that I really enjoy because it, it can be, it's very visual, but you're very rarely are you sight fishing. So the element of surprise is just to the roof with bass fishing. And I think other fisheries certainly can rival at times, but overall I, it's, you know, fishing for largemouth bass on the surface is, um, as good as it gets for me, um, places you know whether it's a farm pond or a ditch or like fork or i got a chance to fish some amazing places in central florida this summer that were while we, you know basically you're fishing in the home waters of the florida strain largemouth so that's pretty cool but the fisheries themselves were they almost couldn't have designed a better fishery for fly fishing you know deep water is seven or eight feet and you know whereas in the summertime on lake fork you know you're a lot of people aren't fishing 20, 30 feet deep. Um, yeah. So it's pretty cool to go around and fish these other bass fisheries, and, you know, and when you meet somebody who has also decided to, you know, take on the challenge of largemouth on a fly rod, um, it's really fun because there's something about it that's, it's not necessarily that you're going against the grain, but it's definitely a test in patience. When they don't want to feed on the surface, you just have to be, you know, you got to be patient. You can go down a little bit, but when they do want to feed on the surface, there's no better way to do it than with a fly rod. Yeah, agreed, man. I I would almost rather throw top water for bass than just about anything else. Uh, in freshwater, um, you know, it's it's hard to beat uh, hard to beat the eat of a bass. Um, is is Rob Woodruff? Is he still guiding? Because I, I want to say that we went fishing with him like in 2010 or something like that. Maybe even before that, maybe 2008. I, it was a long time ago. Yeah. So Rob is, he lives in Norfolk, Arkansas, and he relocated up there last year. And he is, this year, I know he's taking a lot of, he takes a lot of pride in knowing the fisheries. And I know he knew them well prior, but I know he's been spending a ton of time on the water and really getting to learn the ins and outs of those tailwaters, both for trout, but also there's a ton of great smallmouth fishing up there. And I haven't been able to get up there yet and fish with him and his wife, Jenny. Um, they rock, they're awesome. And they both guide. And that was a big deal. And they're, um, so he is 100% in the industry and, um, and he's really excited about those fisheries up there. You know, Lake Fork is as busy as it was back in the heyday. It's almost unfathomably busy now. You really, I was out there all last summer and it's not uncommon to have two to 3,000 boats on the lake in one day. Um, Jeez. And, and that's hard to really comprehend, right? You know, um, until you see it and you see the volume. You know, and having one, two, three tournaments on the lake in the same day, um, it's just a different world. And, you know, the market with Dallas here is so big. There's so many folks who love to go fishing. And, not, you know, you have, they've created, that lake has essentially been its own, you know, economy and um, culture out there. It's a legendary place. And we, we see that in, on the, we see that in places in Montana where the fisheries themselves are the, the lifeblood of the community. Sure. And even if people aren't directly or even cognizant of it, their job, their their career is directly impacted by that fisheries health and ability to draw in people 
um, whether they're local or whether they're, you know, traveling from Japan or something like that. So um, with that boon, are you seeing, um, you know, more, more folks taking up the fly rod on Lake Fork or is it primarily still a conventional tackle fishery? Well, I mean, we're talking about 99%, but I think there are more, there's undoubtedly more fly anglers out there now than, you know, than there ever has been. There's a lot of the community in Texas of fly anglers is, is very intertwined and connected um, in a different way than out West where I think the abundance of good fishing, whether it's on the West coast itself or the Rockies, you know, people, the fishing's just so good. People just go fishing and down here spend a lot of time at working with the local fly fishing clubs. Um, and each city and region will often have a group of anglers who have formed a club to come together and we'll have a meeting once a month, such as Dallas fly fishers, Fort Worth fly fishers, Red River fly fishers, Lone Star fly fishers. Um, and these are all like-minded individuals who some of them fish a lot and some of them don't fish as much and some just like to BS and be there for the the time and um, and they have a you know they've put together a, um, a bass fishing tournament on Lake Fork that goes really well and uh, there's a few of those around Texas and it's lighthearted there you know a lot of it's either you know they usually break it into divisions of motorized versus non-motorized and so and a lot more conventional tackle anglers are understanding the advantages of a fly. Um, even if they don't know how to fly fish, when you're a, when you fish a lot and you learn how you like your baits to move and what kind of accomplish what kind of things you want to accomplish with your bait or your fly, you, you eventually speak the same language. Even if it's a fly angler talking to a conventional angler, especially in the streamer world. Um, you know, when you're in Montana, you can certainly fish your entire, you know, you fish your whole life just fishing dry flies and nymphs, um, and not even be aware of the predator side of things in the river, or maybe you just don't like to, it's totally cool. Um, and, but when you, you know, when you, when you start learning how to make your fly swim and what tends to get the reactions that make your heart beat, um, you start to really learn and then you, you know, from the fly tying perspective, you're looking to build a fly that fits all those boxes, you know, and you're constantly tinkering with materials, tweaking designs. I know like this year I have a fly that I came up. The first one I ever tied was at slide in at the bench. And I wanted a bait fish that walked like a Zara spook, which is, yeah, you know, kind of one of the, top two or three iconic bass baits for top water and it's a bait that moves within the water surface without creating a splash and it's a deadly tactic um, because predators love to f trap their bait on the surface and use that as a wall um, and the foam-headed bait fish which is called the wet bandit it was my first fly with rainies and that's thanks to the crew at slide in and getting me in the door with Rainey's Fly Company, um, and especially on the Madison, which is broad and shallow, the fish really like to use the surface. You can, if they're feeding actively, you're going to be able to get those big browns to come up and show themselves on the surface because it's what they're used to doing. And likewise with bass, you know, I that that fly itself, and I have a few different variations of it now that are that kind of accomplish different profiles and stuff. But to this day. I'm yet to really run into a concept that is as effective as getting bass or browns or whatever it is to come up and eat on the surface. And it's been a fly that's caught, you know, all manners of stuff in salt water and fresh water. And, um, it's, it's, it's fun to, to connect those dots. I think my being so into bass fishing growing up and learning about all the baits and soft plastics and different types of crankbaits, you know, that's the approach I took to fly tying when I got into learning how to tie streamers. And at, for a few years, I was still fishing, you know, fishing your bugs and fishing Kelly's stuff and um, Johnny's stuff. And, you know, I, you know, I carried more bugger beasts than I can even think about in the boat. You know, I had six or seven of everything and every color, you know, and, um, and I, when I've established 
where I thought there was some gaps that I really wanted to work on, which for instance, the sculpin, which is a, you know, a really big, broad pad of uh, bait fish that is essentially the kind of the number one menu item. It's the proverbial ribeye for big trout in the North Rockies. And there's a few fisheries that don't have as many sculpin, but for the most part, you're gonna do well if you fish a sculpin, whether it's an olive woolly bugger or something more precise or, you know, the classic woolhead sculpin. But one of the kind of trademarks about sculpin flies whether they're something that was tied 50 years ago or something that's tied, you know, just came on the, you know, just came out of somebody's vice is that they typically are bulky and difficult to cast. And I looked at, you know, the really good flies out there, the ones that have transcended generation, clousers, deceivers, woolly buggers, um, small minnow patterns, all of them user-friendly like they all have that ability to you can get the fly in the water right um and i that's so important the fly itself is the last thing there's so much more before that that happens to catch a fish like if you try to outfish an olive woolly bugger like good luck man i just (laughs) like you can only try um and now, are there times when you want a bigger olive woolly bugger, you want more action, you know, that's where we've, you know, like you're the Space Invaders, basically a woolly bugger on steroids. It's got rubber legs coming off of it, barred ostrich. Exactly. Um, and and especially like and when, you, when I started learning when I was at River's Edge and at the time they were one of the larger, maybe the largest outfitter in the state out of Bozeman, um, I was learning from some of the some legendary fishing guides and the amount of brown and olive woolly buggers those guys used was (laughs) it was it wasn't necessarily the other end of the spectrum but they caught a lot of big fish and they were very particular about how their buggers were tied and um being a shop that at the time was owned by guides you know um who had guided there for years and guided on the madison out of west yellowstone for years they were particular. They the the flies and the like the type of rubber legs and the type of woolly buggers they use and girdle bugs. Were, it's very important. And I know I noticed the type of olive and brown woolly buggers that they wanted were the really good ones, basically. And they had a couple companies, but really only one that provided them in the quality they wanted. And it had a big, you know, longer hackles in the front towards the eye of the hook, a really nice clean marabou tail with a little bit of flash, but not too much. And um, I mean, more often than not, when a client or a group would come back in and you could always tell when somebody got a big brown on the Yellowstone, it was almost always on one of those buggers. And I've seen it and I'm, you know, you could throw rubber legs on it, cone heads, dumbbells, change your variations. And, you know, the bugger itself, it doesn't scale out too well beyond a four or a two. But, you know, and I think that's where articulated flies start to have a ton of advantage when you start wanting to create a larger profile. And at first, you know, I think a lot of anglers see the two hooks, which, um, and they, they think that that's kind of an advantage of sorts. And the more you fish them, the more you, you know, your big Browns almost always come on that front hook. And I, I don't, you know, and, that, and even, even steelhead fishing, you know, the stinger hook really got going 15 years ago, but a lot of those classic steelhead, I mean, the purple egg sucking leech is a woolly bugger and yeah. you could try to outfish that fly if you want to, but it's going to be tough. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess, you know, and for a long time tying streamers, I was really using a lot of natural materials and, when I started dabbling with foam into streamers and started, you know, using synthetic hackles um, and creating different contrast points within a fly that, you know, because I, I could see like this woolly bugger, this olive woolly bugger with that, with this, the way a marabou tail looks and then the body transitions, you know, it really, it's very suggestive anatomically. It doesn't really look like anything, but it, it acts like everything and it kind of looks like everything. And if you can get into a spot without spooking your fish, that fish has no reason to believe that it isn't a sculpin, or if you have it tied a different way, it isn't a crawdad or whatever it may be. And it's just a model of simplicity that is, you know, to this day, I mean, we t- I talk about it in here as a bass fly and a brim fly, half the, half the locals fish an olive woolly bugger and a, you know, 
size to whatever fly rod they like to use. Right. Um, and that's, you know, and obviously that's the same up in, up in the North and it's always cool to see new flies, but you can always learn a lot from the ones that have been working for generations. Well, you're obviously um, a real student of the game in terms of, uh, of fly design and presentation. Um, and uh, you've turned, you've turned that into a, uh, a, a nice business for yourself. Um, can you tell me kind of about uh, the genesis of uh, the Dirty Water Fly Company? Absolutely. Yeah. And this is, um, man, and I think be, I was so lucky to have spent 15 seasons living in Montana and man, we could travel, we could go to South America, we could go anywhere, but there's rivers up there and there's nowhere else like them in the world. And the ones that free flow still, the free stones and the upper portions of rivers that are dammed, they are very special. And the more you travel and the more you go around to places like Texas and Colorado and even Wyoming to a certain extent, the more you realize there's not a lot of rivers left that are intact. Um, and spending, you know, I'm lucky enough to call the Yellowstone, the Jefferson, the Big Hole, the Missouri, all the upper Missouri watersheds, the Madison, all these great places. I was able to call those my home rivers for a long time. And each one of those rivers is so different. And the water that flows through them has a color to it. And in the spring, in April, May, June, when the snow melts coming down and the rivers are colored up and big and strong and the bugs are going nuts. And um, if you're, you know, if you happen to be there for that and you hit those conditions right, it just does not, you know, you can't, you can't hardly put that into words until you really experience it. And that's where the name Dirty Water Flyco came because you, you know, when you first get into it, you think about all these trout streams and there's spring creeks and it's gin clear and the fish are huge and they're eating PMDs all day long. And, um, which there's certain, I mean, that is amazing stuff as well. But when you get to see these big rivers and the, you know, Missoula couldn't be a better example of it. Two of the you know, most amazing rivers combined in city limits, Bitterroot and the Clark Fork. And they both, that Clark Fork has a certain greenish color after Rock Creek dumps in and up higher, it has a tannic color from Warm Springs Creek and Racetrack Creek. And the Bitterroot has its own color. And you, I think, and I always, you know, you go now, social media has, man, it has grown fly fishing like wildfire. And I, oh, and I, it's funny because when I see people post images of trout out of Western Montana, you can, I can almost always identify exactly what river it is by the watercolor. Yeah, that's cool. And whether it's the greenish emerald hues of the Yellowstone or the tannic colors of the Big Hole or that certain clear blue water of the Madison um, and the Bitterroot has a tannic color too depending on which feeder creek is putting in the most water and, um, you know and then the Missouri just has that slime <laughs> you know it's, it's kind of greasy but it's so good um, and it's fun to appreciate all that and you know you can go and fish all over the place and you won't see that anywhere else. You literally have to go to somewhere like Patagonia where they're, you know, man, has it quite reached out as far um, as they have in the Western United States and put a dam on every possible river. And um, We have plenty of tailwaters in Montana and dammed rivers that are amazing too, that, you know, as far as the industry is concerned, they are, a huge part of it because they offer the consistency and I think I love the concept of patience planning a trip understanding that some of the variables are out of your control you plan a trip to go fish the Yellowstone or the big hole and it could be in flood stage <laughs> like yeah, you could like this year on the Bitterroot you know eight nine ten thousand CFS um, oh yeah you you can you might just show up and have to take it like that's yeah. a lot of folks and I, did in in late June around here they uh yeah it was it was uh, real rugged conditions and things didn't come into shape until almost mid July yeah and it's you know as people in the industry I think what defines the ones who are there are you know all the time is the 
appreciation for that, even when it makes like as a guide, like in Missoula or Bozeman and all the rivers are in flood stage. And the only place you really should be taking anybody is the Missouri. And you know, there's going to be a hundred plus boats up there. It's tough. Um, yeah, you know, and that, and fly shops are trying to make it happen, right? They got people from Dallas who booked, you know, last year and they, they look at the bitter root and they're thinking that looks pretty big. And you're thinking, yeah, it is. And we're, um, we're going to have to pull out all the stops to make this, you know, a fun trip. But I think people do appreciate that um, about Montana. And, you know, it's, those are some big rivers. We saw the Yellowstone do what it did. You know, the Yellowstone reclaimed a lot of its river channel this year. Um, I was lucky to be on it in May before the flooding and uh, before kind of, you know, all the stars aligned to put a ton of snow up in the park and then followed by crazy heavy rain. And boom, we have a river that we've really not seen get to that scale. Right, right. It's, yeah, it was a pretty incredible year and interesting to chat to the chat with the guides and the folks over there who said that, yeah, it's relatively back to normal for the most. I mean, that's what most of them are saying as far as the fishing's concerned. Like, you know, I kind of thought, oh, a little doom and gloom here. It was going to take many years for that fishery to recover. And they had lost entire age classes of fish. And I'm sure there's um, there's definitely some truth in that. But overall, it sounds like things are going to be okay on the Yellowstone. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the next couple of years you're going to see, I wouldn't necessarily say use the term record fishing, but fishing is going to be very good on the Yellowstone. All the fish that live in there, especially the way the browns are and the rainbow, like while it was for us above the river, you know, it looked crazy. But for them, that's every year to a certain extent. And it gets reshuffled every year. Um, you look at the way the big brown trout in there. I mean, there's no fish that is as recognizable in the in Montana as a giant Yellowstone brown. Right. They have a certain look to them. They're a long fish. Yeah, it's interesting what you, what you said about the Yellowstone and those browns. I was really kind of blown away when I first my the first time I fished the Yellowstone was um, in the mid '90s, 1995. Um, I went out to Bozeman for school and. Um, my buddies that had already been out there had befriended some local guides. So, you know, they took us out and, and we floated the river right as soon as we, as we got there for school. So hopper season, early September. And, um, yeah, you could just throw a Turks tarantula in the middle of the river in the heaviest current and fish would come up and eat it. And, uh, it was just unlike any place I had seen in that regard. Um, just, you know, to your point of where those fish will hold in that river, they can hold anywhere, across that heavy current you know they have current is one of the biggest tools that big trout use to feed especially on you know whether it's bugs and like let's say somewhere where there's a big back eddy and a foam bucket and it's picking up all the bugs and whether the fish are feeding on emergers or nymphs or up on the surface it's the current that's bringing the food there and that's a little different concept but for a big brown they have a really big advantage in navigating that kind of water. And when they see a sculpin or a baby trout or whitefish elevated in the water column and heavy current, it's like knowing your cheeseburger is cooked perfectly and it's about to happen. They've got that down to a science there. I mean, some of those dry fly eats and current, you couldn't even, even if it was a foot deep, you could barely stand up. Right. It's so powerful, but that's where those fish are sitting. And, it's pretty cool to see how they've developed that specific kind of style of feeding, especially in the later in the summer. And, um, and it, you know, you could prepare for it all you want, but eventually you're going to be in a really fast tail out. That's really shallow and you're going to look away and then you're going to feel something and you look back and there's a, you know, two foot long brown trout trying to eat your Turks tarantula or a Chernobyl ant and you're asleep at the wheel because you didn't think there was any possible way that he could still be sitting out in this current. <laughs> right. And, you know, you're just thinking you look over and there's a shark eating your giant foam bug and you're, <laughs> you, you know, you got a cold beverage in one hand and you're talking about something else with your buddy and then, you know, maybe you get a, <laughs> but a lot of times 
your your left there, um, just to witness. Catching yeah, one of those absolutely. really big browns is always just a, a special thing, and you know, guys are getting, you know, using techniques that I don't think you know people are willing to do whatever it takes to catch those fish with a client more so nowadays, which I think is a natural development of fishing and guiding. And, um, though I don't think, I think there's definitely some, you know, every guide is a little different and everybody kind of, you know, whether it's learning how to cast the fly rod in the morning so that we can have good dry fly fishing in the afternoon versus bobbering up and just rolling the bobber down the river all day. Um, you know, and there's a different impact for each person using those different techniques and learning to cast the fly rod and whether it's learning how to strip a streamer or drift a dry fly or whatever, you know, that's something that people, um, you know, we as industry folks can take it for granted because we're, we're thinking about it all the time and working with it and doing that and, but for a lot of the for a lot of new anglers, just the casting and the idea of presenting the fly is so intriguing that um, just making that one step. I mean, we've seen it. I, you know, you have two boats go out, and one boat is running, you know, a bugger and a soft tackle under a bobber or something, and the other boat's fishing a, you know, a royal trout or a Turks tarantula or some classic dry fly, and the people fishing the dry fly catch a. 16 inch cutthroat or something and and it's like the greatest thing that's ever happened and the other boat could be fishing the bobber and they could catch a bunch of big fish but they won't have that same level of excitement um as learning to cast a fly rod and presenting a dry fly and having a fish come up and eat it right right so um kind of getting back to the dirty water fly company here so um so it started out in montana and as you know, a, a custom tying operation, and now um, you have uh, you've expanded and um, moved back to your roots in Texas and opened up a brick and mortar shop in Plano. Correct? This is correct. So we have a we have the biggest little hole in the wall fly shop. We've got we everything a, a person might need from their first thread wrap on a hook to going and catching a fish. And we have, we do fly tying every day. We have a big fly tying bench right front and center in the shop. We, um, where I'm tying commercially, both for the shop and custom and everything like that. And, um, we have a great local fly tying community. So they come in and we do classes and, um, are excited about elevating that. And one of the main fundamentals of the shop is, is education based and, having folks who, you know, just having an open door for somebody to come into and learn a little bit. And, you know, whether it's somebody who hasn't even thought about fishing or somebody who's fished their whole life using other techniques. And I've been very lucky to work with some of the best brands in fly fishing. And we're all of us industry folks are lucky to still be able to call and talk to a um, somebody who designed the piece of gear or gear that's built in the U.S. You know, we carry anything from high-performance stuff at an entry-level price point to the finest, you know, the finest goods you can buy and and a ton of fly tying stuff. And it's it's been really nice. It's a very laid-back atmosphere. We have coffee. We do donuts on Saturdays. And the brands that I worked with at Creekside and the River's Edge, um people I've known for decades have been amazing and definitely could not have done that without them. Um, and we try to carry as much American made product as we can while still recognizing the need to get people out on the water at a, you know, at a little bit more of a budget. So we have flies tied by other American tires, um, including hellfire flies in Massachusetts, Houston fly fishing, Danny Scarborough, local guide who does some amazing warm water fishing and is a wonderful fly tire. Um, Lee Blanton, Feather and Fly Outdoors right here in the Metroplex. He does a lot of our classes and is a team member here. Um, and he's just awesome. And we've got kind of an open bench policy, come down and tie. And um, people are pretty excited about that. Well, it seems to me um, in, in the little bit of time that I've spent in Texas, um, 
that there is a ton of enthusiasm for fly fishing in that state, um, but maybe not a lot of resources for folks that are just trying to get into the sport. Um, I remember I was interviewing um, Will from Brazos on the Fly for the podcast, and I don't I don't know if you know him or not, but you know he was explaining to me how most of his clientele are are just newbies that that jump in the boat and. I said, man, isn't it hard to, to teach people how to fly fish, you know, right out of the gate f- from a boat in the wind? And he said, well, yeah, it really is, but there's really no other way to do it um, just because there's not as many resources here for newbies as there are in some other places like, you know, in Montana, for instance. So it sounds like your shop is really a resource for for folks that are, uh, that are really interested in the sport um, and they have a place where they can go and, and kind of learn from the ground up. Absolutely. And it has been, you know, the community has been amazingly supportive and the, the local groups, people, you know, it's, it's a big city. Dallas, Fort Worth's no joke. Um, you know, it's like having a city from Livingston to Billings, Bozeman to Billings, you know, and having that. And it's so cool to talk to people about, you know, so many different things, the variety of fishing down here, you know, one guy's or one angler's comes in and they've been fishing their little three weight for brim and occasionally a small bass. And then the next folks coming in throwing, you know, nine weights for stripers on Lake Texoma. And then you got the, you know, it's just, it's really cool. And I think that's really important for a lot of the new folks who are new to the idea of fly fishing in Texas, which is a pretty high percentage of our uh, foot traffic are folks who just stopped in to be thinking, well, I didn't really think about fly fishing down here. I know about, you know, out West in Colorado and, Montana and stuff for trout and the clear rivers and all that. And, um, they're really, whether they've bass fished or done any other type of fishing before, when they get to see that they could do whatever they were doing with their bait caster or spinning rod, but they could do it with a fly rod. It, it definitely, uh, sparks a lot of curiosity and some of them really pick up right away and, um, you know, immediately start to recognize it. And I think that's why we're seeing it being so popular down here um it's easy to get gear you could you know we down here you know there aren't a lot of fly shops um and the ones that are here are very you know connected with the community and they're spread out you know in bozeman i what was there i think seven or eight fly shops in bozeman five in missoula yeah um right and you know texas like true full service fly shops like you know, not not necessarily like travel or apparel and stuff. We're, we're gluttonous in Montana. There's so many great fly shops um, down here in Texas. You know, there isn't as many because there isn't the fisheries on the fly fishing to really generate that kind of um, like outfitting and destination travel. Um, but the, there, there really has been an amazing amount of support for somebody to come in and realize, okay, this is a fly shop. They have flies, fly tying stuff, and fly tackle, and a few other oddities and things you might need on the water. And, uh, you know, right here we have, we have a number of Orvis stores. Um, we've got some big box stores who carry fly fishing stuff. We've got um, a couple other really cool fly shops right in the Metroplex. Um, you know, and there's, there's been a really good amount of acceptance and support for, um, being able to come in and just talk fishing and not have to worry about anything else, whether you're just want to learn a little bit about a fly or whatever it could be, or you go on fishing or headed out West or going on a trip and very, very happy to be down here. It's an honor to represent the brands and to keep doing something that I've been passionate about in fly shops, which is getting people out there on the water themselves. Well, awesome, man. Good on you. Um, circling back to topwater bass fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How do you set the hook when a bass eats your topwater bug? Well, in a perfect world where you have a pretty good idea of when the magic is about to happen, a pure strip set is invaluable. You just, you can't make up that, that kind of power with a direct strip set like you would in saltwater fishing. And bass have a bony mouth. They have um, larger bones that you need a little wider gap hook. And they're a fish that you don't get to let them run. 
um, or even trout fishing to a certain extent. Um, you hook a nice one and you let them swim around out there. There's no doing that with bass. Um, you, you're going right into the trees. She's going back to the stump she lives under. Um, so that strip set and like the top water concept is one of the most important fundamentals of the big picture with bass fishing with a fly rod is that you've gotten that fish both to eat and to expose itself and get it out of the cover at the same time. Um, now, because you don't know when it's going to happen and you're not always in perfect position to execute a strip set, you know, which I think is probably the toughest thing with bass fishing. Whereas like I, I've dealt with a lot of really good saltwater anglers. They can sight cast, they can cast 70 feet into a, you know, a Coors Light can and, but they really rely on that visual, you know, like a bonefish, you see it swimming over, you know, you, and you, sometimes you can't see it and it's really hard. But you do know that the fish is there, and you know when it's likely to happen, when they're going to eat. With bass, you, you got nothing. You're just fishing. You're in the blind 100%. And at any point, the water could just erupt. And that's a, that is so much fun. Um, even when it doesn't work out, you still got to witness, right? Um, and it when you're out of position and you, maybe you decided you wanted to twitch the fly with the rod a little bit, or you were, you know, looking over at your buddy and, you know, I know I have made my fair share of prayer hook sets for largemouth with the rod and just trying to recover slack with as much strip as possible. But sometimes you're just not in position and you got to find a way and, um, it doesn't always work out, but it is, really fun that element of surprise it makes the strip set super challenging and some days you seem to have it some days you've you know you're the when the fly lands you you're already in position you're already you make your strips and the fish are kind of working with your rhythm and then other days it seems like right when you start to strip a big one comes up and blows it up and, and you can't quite nail it right there and you just get a piece of them and then you know you might have another day where right when you pause it and you're letting it sit so they can come up and eat it, they do. And it all, and it, and, you know, and it goes by the book. Um, but there's, you know, it's a challenge, no doubt about it. Um, and I, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And sometimes you're fishing short range. Sometimes you're fishing long range. We've got a bunch of little creeks down here. We've got big rivers. We've got reservoirs. We've got ponds, you know, and, um, and a variety of food sources that that top water element so much fun yeah i think that's one of the hardest parts muscle memory wise um coming from a you know dry fly troutish background um when you get that top water eat on the bass if you lift the rod like a like a grasshopper eat or something you're probably going to miss that fish um and you know it's it's interesting because like I haven't necessarily had that crossover problem that a lot of folks do when they go bone fishing for the first time, just cause I've done a fair number of streamer fishing. So I don't have that rod lift issue, but um, when I go from trout to bass, I undoubtedly miss my first several topwater eats. Um, yeah. Because I, I just, I don't apply the proper hook set, um, whether, you know, it's a straight on strip set or a strip set to one side or the other, but um, that rod lift is a killer <laughs> in my experience. So interesting to kind of hear you verify that. Yeah. And I, out of even up in, even fishing out West for big trout and out of, and I've been lucky. I've fished with some of the most incredible anglers and they all, everybody has a little different system and a little different techniques and um, they each have pros and cons, um, you know, dangers and challenges or at least, you know, if you start, you know, and I know a lot of great anglers who use their rod to move their fly a lot. And I see what kind of flies they like to use. And they're usually flies with not necessarily two hooks, but with maybe a lighter wire hook. Because that rod, if your rod's out sideways and a fish strikes, you just don't have anything with a strip set. So you're going to try to use the rod. Fly rods are typically nine feet long and can be literally doubled over. So that shock absorption is a tool, but it can also be a hindrance. And with bass fishing, you really don't have any room for air. You, you know, you don't want to really lift that rod until you're dead to screws tight to them. Um, right. And 
I certainly have a I, – I like to start with a very hard strip set and go back with my body um, and not necessarily lifting the rod tip, but lifting the – pulling the butt up and towards me has been an effective technique. Okay. Um, because no matter what, even, even on almost pure glass water, there, you've got to eliminate that slack to get tight to the hook to set the hook. And – anything you can do to do that while maintaining tension to the fly is very helpful. And that's, you know, I, the adage of rod tip down when you're stripping and retrieving your fly is very important because it gives you that direct connection to the fly. Yeah. What you said about slack uh, reminds me of um, the adage of the Hayward fly fishing company, which those guys do a ton of top water stuff for smallmouth, and mm -hmm. and uh, their, their slogan is slack is evil. And if yeah. you come from a trout fishing background, that doesn't make any sense to you. But if you go topwater smallmouth fishing with those guys, then you get it or, or topwater bass fishing anywhere. So, um, well, awesome, man. Um, the, uh, your website is uh, dirtywaterflyco.com. And how, uh, how best can folks get in touch with you, uh, Dan, to learn more about your, your business and, uh, and your fly patterns? Yeah, well... The website is a great way to do that. We just completed a remodel that allowed us to have our, you know, going from just a commercial fly tying operation and materials distribution to a full-fledged fly and tackle shop. We had to make some adjustments, but we're pretty happy with navigation and um, using the website is really good. You can find us on Instagram at Dirty Water Fly Co. Um, you can email me anytime at dan at dirtywaterflyco.com. Um, check out, give me a call, send me a text, 406-600-6732. And no question um, should be feared. Feel free to ask away. And we do try to help folks connect the dots as much as possible and let them get out there out, out there on the water. I've um, been very fortunate to work with so many great folks in the industry, and that's something that certainly has made it all, made it all work and worthwhile. And the folks in the industry and the folks who don't even know they're about to be a fly angler, you know, and everybody in between. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free. But if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.